0: Okay, well I was going to start by saying something that Fiona has already said, but I will say it again because it is important. Um, The obvious point to make about trees in post-conflict landscapes is that trees are cut down to feed the war effort. And this was especially true in the days of wooden ships when, as Fiona has already told us, 2,000 mature trees, um, mainly oaks, were needed to make one warship. So when wars are over, people notice the landscape of its trees. So um, there are three important books on British trees. Um, John Evelyn's *Silver* is probably the most important of them, um, published originally in 1664. Um, and then there was a new edition of this in 1776, um, edited by Alexander Hunter. And then in 1822, um, another book um, produced by Jacob George Strutt called *Silver Britannica*. And all the three books were produced in years after wars, when defeated stocks of timber caused alarm, and John Lewis <coughs> specifically said his book was all about the need to encourage tree planting in a landscape that was still ravished by the effects of the Civil War. Oak trees, he wrote, are the only support of that navigation which makes us feared abroad and flourish at home. In other words, oak trees were essential both to trade and to defense. Alexander Hunter, in his preface to his greatly enlarged edition of Edwin Silver, published in 1776, commented that tree planting increased markedly after Evelyn's book was published, and that many of the ships gave laws to the whole world, in his words, in the last war, that is, the Seven Years' War, 1756, 1763, were planted at that time. And then struck Silver Botanica. I hadn't really been thinking of it as a post-war book until I was invited to give this talk, but of course, um, I'm sure Strzok started thinking of it in the late 1810s, and one of the dates on it is 1822. So this was the post war decade. The authors of all three books also recorded ancient trees. With Strzok, there is more emphasis on the preservation of ancient trees and on new planting. Strzok's book also differs from the others in being a collection of etched portraits of trees with a substantial commentary. When North commissioned portraits of his three sons and three daughters from the young about 1763, the artist represented them playing in the an old oak tree, one that had evidently survived the demand for timber during the war. In the same year, and the year that the Seven Years' War ended, Roger Fisher, a shipwright in Liverpool, published a book entitled Heart of Oak, the British, I can never pronounce this word, Bullwalk, yeah, the British Bullwalk. Britain, he argued, needs to pay more attention to that valuable part of our treasure, the heart of oak. The welfare of our co- king and country, our religion, laws, and liberty depend upon it. But without the art of shipbuilding and proper materials wherewith to construct ships, we shall soon become a prey to the next Aspiring invader. Fisher complained that Frenchified ideas were causing landowners to cut down the trees near their mansions, and that this was a bad thing who was presumably thinking of the landscape gardening the capability of capability Brown, ground, just was so the beautiful National Trust gardens. The reverence for oak trees in this period isn't always about Britain's naval strength. The writers often refer to the worship of oak trees by the Druids, who were seen as the original ancient Britons, but one reason they're admired is because they resisted an earlier foreign invader, the Romans. And of course, ancient oak trees on the state were seen as proof of the longevity of the family, the tree of family tree, and of their resistance to financial temptation It was patriotic to plant oaks and fell them when they matured, but paradoxically, if you let some of your oaks grow into extreme old age, especially in wartime when timber prices were high, that was even better because it showed that you were not a money brother. In 1770, Horace Walpole linked the survival of ancient trees in Britain to her liberty as a country where Parliament was sovereign, in contrast to the absolute monarchy of France. In France, he said, an ancient tree was a curiosity. Once they reached a certain bulk, They would be marked by crown surveyors as royal timber. This is the first plate from Strutt's Silver Britannica. The book itself is folio sized, so this is a large plate. This book I wrote was famous because it had been immortalized in the poem Newwood Forest by Francis Mundy, which was first published anonymously in 1776. Strutt wrote Among the ancient Britons, its concentrated shade was devoted to the most solemn ceremonies of the Druids and scarcely is held in less generation by this, their descendants, who find all the interests which it may be dispoiled by the passing away of superstitions, revived by the ideas of British power and British independence, which must be inseparably, inse- inseparably connected with the image of the British oak in the minds of Englishmen. So Strutt makes it clear at the outset, and he's conscious of the symbolism of the oak, both as a survival for the Jews, and as a reminder of British naval power and protection from invasion and conquest. And, as I said, Strutt began publishing these sections in 1822, so just seven years after the ending of the Napoleonic Wars. Strutt's commentaries on other trees in his book stress their importance as elements of continuity. He reckons that the talk chestnut, which is a tree in Worcestershire, is over a thousand years old, and comments, how many, not many generations of men, but whole nations, have been swept from the face of the earth, whilst winter after winter it has defied the howling blasts with its bare branches and spring after spring for forth its leaves again. Its tranquil existence, unlike that of the human race, stained by no guilt, shepherded by no vicissitudes, is thus perpetually renewing itself. So the old tree can represent a country that has survived war and resisted foreign I mean, invasion, remaining innocent itself in the face of so much human conflict. I did try to look for trees that are owned by the National Trust. Um, and, of course, there's this one, the Ankerwick U, um, which in Strutt's time was spelt without the extra seed it now has. Strzok thought that this treaty was already over a 1,000 years old. The current estimates, however, are that it's more like 2,500 years old, or that there may be a National Trust person here who will correct me on that, I don't know. Strzok writes that Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn are supposed to have caught it under its branches, but he says it's better to remember it as, quote, the silent witness of the conferences of those brave barons who afterwards compelled King John to sign Harkin Carton. It is therefore a tree that has helped to resolve conflict in the distant past, in his view, and one whose survival is a reminder of the origin of those precious liberties. Another artist, Henry William Burgess, published a book of images of trees in the 1820s. This was entitled Hydrodendron, and it consists of lithographs, the same generous size as Strutt's etchings. Burgess also looked at the Ankwick Yew, but his image of the tree looks very different from Strutt's. Um, Strutt describes it as being in the grounds of John Leibre as well, and shows it neatly trimmed around its trunk. In Burgess's view, however, its foliage grows in great sweeps towards the ground, and its owner is in as G.S. Harcourt as well. So both artists show it accompanied by guidance indicating its current role as a decorative object in the gentleman's pleasure grounds. Even a line for Burgess is generally more romantic. I can use that word, approach, the contrast is dramatic. Strutt's drawing was made in 1822 or earlier, Burgess's probably in 1829, and that was indeed the year when Harcourt repurchased the land New and the estate of John Playgrove, who died in 1824. Um, tastes were changing, and the yews, which had formerly been clipped into temporary shapes, are now being allowed to grow naturally, but even so, I don't think the tree can kind have of grown quite that much in seven years, and Burgess is surely exaggerating the luxuriance of the tree's appearance. The contrasting title pages of the two books also indicate their different characters. Burgess is much more flamboyant, he seems to have gone absolutely mad with all these different fonts that used on his title page. Um, and the, um, it also stresses his connections to the monarchy, um, so he starts by saying it's dedicated by permission, his most gracious majesty, and um, this this um, worked because he became a landscape painter to the king in 1832, although now nobody's heard of him at all. Um, it's interesting, Strutt's emphasis is much more on liberties and the monarchy comes rather well, badly out of, out of his book and you know, his keynote rebels and Magna Carta and so on. John Constable was a personal friend of Jacob George Strutt. Constable and his wife were friendly with the Strutt's and saw them regularly in the years between 1823 and 1826, just at the time when Strutt was turning his separate plates at the Silver Britannica into a volume. They socialised with each other's families. Constable subscribed to the Silver Britannica, and he even lent money when the matter became hard up. Um, I couldn't find the evidence of them actually discussing trees, or there are some letters that, that, that provide, I'm sure they did, but um, sadly, their friendship was sorely tested at the end of the 1820s because Strutt failed to repay the loan um, and had to leave the country. Constable's very celebrated drawing of elm trees, that I'm showing you here, is very like Strutt's etchings. A portrait of a particular tree completed just two years after the Battle of Waterloo. In the same year, or actually no, yeah, okay, the previous summer, 1816, um, Constable was painting portraits of two black poplar trees in his landscape painting of Blackwood Mill, which of course is now National Trust property. Arguably, his depiction of the tranquil landscape here and in the canal scenes of the 1820s should be seen as a comment on the relief that followed the final victory, and Thinking about this subject, you know, for this talk, I thought, well, perhaps we can see the rather battered trees in Blackford Mill, especially the one behind the main tree on the right, it's really in a pretty bad way, um, as a symbol of a country that has survived long years of war that still bears its scars. I believe that Burgess's romantic depiction of ancient beech trees at Noel in Kent, another well, National, National Trust property, um, had an impact on another painter, Samuel Palmer. Palmer's drawings of the oak trees in London Park um, not National Trust, uh, <coughs> take a similarly low viewpoint and emphasise what Palmer described as the muscular belly and shoulders, the twisted sinews of the old trees. Here again, they might perhaps be seen as sim- symbols of survival in a post war world or symbols of continuity in a land that has resisted conquest. <coughs> um, Malfio has already mentioned, of course, for Nash. Um, <laughs> And I'm going to say what she's already said. Right? <laughs> it's well known that one response to the shortage of timber after the First World War was the setting up of the Forestry Commission in 1919. Paul Nash had painted many idyllic watercolour trees before the war, but this was his powerful comment on the devastation of the earth caused by human conflict. It was shown in an exhibition entitled "The Void of War" at the Leicester Galleries in May of 1918. It is, of course, a scene set in France, not in Britain, where the landscape had escaped the ravages. Actual battles since the 17th century, but where nevertheless the consciousness of the war and peace has left its mark on our trees and also on our attitudes towards them. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Uh, the long term impact of conflict on the UK. Oh, how do we change this? It is changing. Uh, well, welcome to my own job. These are photographs I took at, at previous conferences. Uh, one of them surprised us with some Finnish Leopard 2 tanks just to get <coughs> a um, what do we mean by conflict? Organised chaos. I've just finished Anthony Beaver's volume on armour, I think we could discount the word organised. So, what scale? Iron Age tribal conflicts, external interference, the Romans, Anglo Saxons, Normans, fledgling kingdoms, the Heptarchy, the whole nations, England be the rest normally, but not exclusively, United Kingdom be the rest of the world, NATO, non state terrorism, or civil conflict. Italy or which is close to my heart where I come from, and similar conflicts. Most, but not all, impacted on the physical landscape and contemporary society, and many continue to elicit a response today. Aims and tactics over the millennium haven't changed much, influenced by force. The scale of potential destruction have, though, steadily increasing. Pierce swords, spears, axes, and slingshots were outchumped by Roman organisation and ingenuity. The post-Roman world, filled with early medieval warrior cultures still based on strength and numbers, <coughs> with the arrival of gunpowder in Europe in the 13th century, the destructive power of conflict, kinetic ability, like, increased at an alarming rate, and the infrastructure of conflict, defensive and offensive, scaled up accordingly. The Industrial Revolution, the global empires, continued this trend, culminating in truly industrial wars such as the American Civil War and World War I, facilitated by railways, which overwhelmingly impacted on society and landscape. The next shift was flight and air power, which brought civilians back in target range, culminating in the Spanish Civil War and World War II, totalitarian warfare. And just when they thought it was all over, it nearly was, with the mutually assured destruction of the Cold War, whose ending brought not peace, but non-state terrorism or asymmetric warfare and different forms of force having different impacts on the landscape we see around us. Humanity's capacity to wage war is one of the defining features of our species and like more benign activities is readable in the physical landscape. But when looking at the landscape, from whose perspective are we looking, it takes two to tango. It may be clear for the modern conflicts, UK with the Nazis and the Poland, etc., but this is, isn't always the case. Across the nations of the UK, remains an early of early conflicts are viewed in different ways, and emotions are still to aroused today. Look at the battlefields of Bambergburn and Cologne and how they are viewed, one celebrated, one mourned. The end of the first castles in Wales, pride and oppression. Anglo-Norman fortifications in Northern Ireland, or the town walls in London dead, or Derry. Still, split opinion across a very real divide. And as for Oliver Cromwell, German World War II defences in the Channel Islands are emotive and go against the myth. Maybe not so obvious, but in England, I can't be alone in looking at huge normal castles such as Richmond in North Yorkshire and feeling an almost genetic sense of resentment. Reaction is in the eye of the beholder, and whether features survived in the landscape can simply depend on who would and had power to effect change. So how does conflict physically manifest itself in the landscape? You could say the whole landscape we see today is a result of conflict. Conflicts won and conflicts lost. What if Boudicca had won, Harold hadn't charged after the supposedly rejoining Normans, the Armada, Napoleon, or Hitler had landed. Would the landscape have looked different, or would the Neolithic, the coming of bronze, enclosure, and the agrarian industrial revolutions, along with some serious climatic alterations, the real shapers of the landscape we see today. The fact we can still trace prehistoric field patterns in our landscape today shows that though societies have changed and evolved and fought and died, our landscape has stayed remarkably stable, though the late 20th and 21st centuries have taken their toll. But there are enduring signs of conflict everywhere Iron know hill forts, which is handled behind them, defended enclosures and boundary ditches, Roman, Roman marching camps, forts, the Saxon shore. Defended towns and two walls, Hadrian's and the Antonine. Hadrian's wall may never have literally divided England and Scotland and doesn't today, but how much does it say about the division? Early medieval boundaries of started dive at Alba. Normal modern Bengali castles, followed by the stone keeps. Medieval castles mainly redundant by gunpowder. Motor manners, defence of prestige. Tudor technology and glamour. Civil War continental systems. The response to the Jacobites, such as General Wade's Wade, roads in the highlands. Pax Britannica and the Palmerston Police, Industrial Warfare, need the remote training areas at the end of the 19th century, Total war, Warfare on the home front, Factories, airway shelters, anti-aircraft batteries and barracks, Cold War airfields, bunkers, missile sites, test facilities, and asymmetric warfare, state surveillance. And we have evidence of battles themselves, the earliest on the English register of battlefields being the Battle of moulden of 991, and the latest in Scotland in Cologne in 1746. But features of conflict didn't all serve the same purpose. Much of what we see in the landscape are the defensive strong points, the Iron Age and Roman forts, nominal Medi- medieval castles, Victorian forts, etc., built to deter or rebuff an enemy, domestic or foreign, or simply to influence power. They may never have seen conflict, or if they did, it may have been for conflict far removed from their original concept. Such as farms and ports being used as World War II anti aircraft batteries. These can be long term components of the landscape and economic and social hubs as well as military garrisons. These civilian roles probably go a long way to explaining their survival. And don't forget, we only see the ones that survive. For every one we see, there are multitudes that were levelled. Don't fall for survival bias. These strong points are at the tip of the iceberg, the redoubts or killing points. But many would have been part of much larger systems of signal towers, smaller forts, roads, and even connected defensive ditches. The infrastructure may only have been extant during a time of crisis, and for the most part hasn't survived, as it probably got in the way of everyday life. Think World War II anti tank ditches, which were enormous and filled in when the immediate danger the pass. These defensive structures stand out in rural and urban landscapes as a constant backdrop to passing generations. Surely, the sense of fear or safeguard they would have evoked at the time of their construction. tourist curiosities, a long way they remain so. Conflicts around the world sadly show how even ancient fortifications can be pressed into service when military needs must. Such sites are like volcanoes, hopefully dormant. If you don't believe then consider making castles, the Iron Age Hillfall, was spitted out the anti grinder defences in World War II to deny it to the Germans in the case they tried to take it with gliders and then use it to a base to mount an attack on the Royal Navy at Portland. Of course, the 1954 Hague Convention for the Protection of Cultural Property, in the event of armed conflict, forbids the use of cultural sites for military objectives, but not everybody plays it all, by all the rules, all of the time. Battlefields, the actual conflict itself. There are many battlefields scattered across the United Kingdom, and these are protected by legislation and can become hotspots during developments. The Second Battle of Newbury its position on the 834 34 Newbury Bypass in but just one case. Battlefields are remote. People still equate to the causes, to be they the victor or the vanquished, and it seems more often the latter. The locations have a strong base in local folklore, and out of respect, may well have been avoided with development to date. Many myths have the around such sites, not all of which have evidence to back them up. Not surprisingly, the recorded and natural locations of battlefields so are not always one and the same, and our evidence of such fleeting occurrences is not always forthcoming. Could be we are actually memorialising an event with a place that wasn't actually a battlefield. Does that matter? To me as an archaeologist, yes, but to society? Interestingly, we are still to see that level of social interest in World War II airfields. In which the battles of Britain and Atlantic and Operations Overlord and Market Garden et al were launched from. Ghostly control towns bear down the long-gone runways along which thousands flew to their deaths, but only the few remaining veterans, statutory bodies and interest groups remember more too soon. Conflicts need to be prepared, prepared and provided for. The competence are but the sharp end. They need training. Provisions, shelter, medical assistance, and resupply. As conflicts grow, the surrounding infrastructure expands. Until by World War II, almost everybody is involved in the conflict, be that mining, medicine, arms, arms manufacturing, or transport. The UK's armed forces are now at the lowest level of manning they've been probably since the Napoleonic Wars. During World Wars One and Two, the army alone numbered in the region three million men. Consequently, our towns and landscapes are littered with former establishments, be they imposing Trump and light Victorian barracks, now push housing, such as in Devisors, or temporary accommodation, now light like industrial units, such as in Sutton Green and Wiltshire. These military handling days are part of our everyday life. Others just change management. Old Hospital started life as a US Army hospital, but is now Salisbury District Hospital. How many of the occupants know their home and workplace history? And the countryside the National Trust prides it itself on managing 248,200 hectares of land. The Ministry of Defence, my old job, manages 240,000 hectares of land on behalf of the country, over two thirds of which is used for military training. The Trust and the MOD estates are almost identical, not only in size, but as havens for nature and heritage and areas of access for the public under strict rules in both cases. The legacy of the military, or perhaps the conflicts it has been involved with, is a state to rival the National Trust. And then there are the memorials themselves. The memorials in the landscape are as part of our landscape as red phone boxes and church fires, with, with a figure of what, over 100,000 quoted. These contain many forms, but are probably better known as the stone crosses. They take pride in most villages, commem- commemorating the form of the two world wars. Other memorials are more military and community-focused, such as the Chalk Badges of Wessex, which commemorate the regiments of them and I believe also kept out of hands with it. The badges as members of regiments in the far-flung countries many originated in are still maintained to these days as a respect not to art, but to people. And the surprise thing, the Trust is probably one of the largest memorials to conflict in the UK, with the trust approximately 250,000 hectares, just over 50,000 hectares of the donated either as a direct war memorial or as a national land fund property, including gems such as Hardwick Hall and Brownsville Island. The end of World War I resulted in the donation of such properties as Sandon Memorial Chapel with its Stanley Spencer paintings, Scarfell Pike and the Great Gable behind it, as memorials inspired by Canon Walters' supposed before Forage to be commemorated by the gifts of the land to the trust. These donations of the propelled the trust into the public eye and Established it in the national consciousness, so the trust could be seen as in the world it in itself, not in by national parks. What is the process to why some features survive and others don't? Assuming the feature survives the conflict, why does it then survive the peace? First, we only see the features that survive. Many, probably most, don't. If they are in the way, then counterattack temperatures, then they will go quickly. If they have a use, then they may be customized and endure. If they are a little use but not underway, the they may then just be forgotten, to be rediscovered later by such initiatives as the Council of British Defence of Britain project. The present military facilities, and many of these date back like a hundred years or more, there is a legal framework to what happens when they are no longer needed, the critical downwards. Under these, surplus land may have to be offered back to the former civilian owner. So, and as part of the negotiations, assets in the land may or may not be removed. But in the end, the sentiment of the new owner will, I suspect, be driven by the same values as previous generations. The Trust has been involved in discussions of these circumstances, and the debate in our case usually comes down to heritage versus nature, and it's not a straightforward discussion. Of course, much of what I've discussed assumes these landscape features align with the sentiments of the local populations. Things may have been different if more than the UK had been occupied during World War II, and German defences in the China Islands survived than they were built to last, more ephemeral signs of the occupation would have quickly been removed. There is something in the human consciousness that doesn't want to forget, as to forget as to dismiss or diminish what happened never again. There are clear exceptions to this theory, though. The policy of normalisation in Northern Ireland following the Good Friday Agreement has seen much of the security infrastructure removed as an act of deliberately forgetting in the hope of moving on, so it can work both ways. And before we get complacent, I think this is all in the past. It isn't. The world still suffers from conflict, and as a nation, we need to be prepared and vigilant. And if we look around, the signs are there. The traditional state conflicts still loom, Russia or Iran, for instance, but non-state terrorism and asymmetric warfare have required a different response to traditional armour and missiles. Instead, our landscape and towns today, in our landscape and towns today, we see pavements blocked around potential targets. Transparent litigants at train stations, CCTV, AMPR, and the mass they need. In short, the surveillance society. Threats have diversified and tactics, counting, have evolved. The struggle has gone digital, so maybe it's our web architecture and not our landscape that will give the clues to conflicts when future historians study our times. Thank you.
0: Are you?